Today from the Global Lane, testing American resolve, China's military on the move. We're seeing a test of strength in the South China Sea and a test of strength in the Taiwan Strait. His visa denied, a divided church in Hong Kong. Pastor Francis Chan is back on the home front. I think the biggest heartbreak was trying to get people to look higher at what God wants of his family, that we don't fight with each other. President Biden's executive actions hurting black Americans? Not only has he done things to kill jobs, and he's doing things so that people can't eat. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Aggressive and destabilizing. That's how the U.S. Indo-Pacific Military Command describes recent military moves by communist China. Late last month, the PRC flew warplanes into the Taiwanese Defense Identification Zone and stepped up naval activities in the South China Sea. The United States responded by sending a carrier strike group to the region. Well, joining us with some insights on China's aggressive moves since Joe Biden entered the White House is Bradley Bowman. Mr. Bowman is senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Brad, thank you for being here. So with Donald Trump out of the White House now, are the Chinese testing Joe Biden's resolve? What do you think? I think that's exactly what they're doing, but I also think they're playing a longer game. And from an American perspective, I see this long game as an effort to uh, uh, to recast the international order, to make it more accommodating for authoritarianism. And to do that first regionally and then globally, they need to push the American military back so they can more effectively bully their neighbors and uh, control resources. And so I see we're seeing a test of strength in the South China Sea and a test of strength in the Taiwan Strait. And diplomacy and development, all of that is essential. But it, a lot of this is going to come down to whether uh, Chinese military planners believe that they can uh, successfully accomplish their political objectives through military force. Now, President Biden responded by denouncing China's move, and then he sent the U.S. carrier fleet into the area. So what more should be done beyond that? I think there's a ton to do. You know, uh, bipartisan experts have been saying for a while now that if uh, China and the United States were going to come to blows, and we all want to avoid that, it most likely would come in the Taiwan Strait. In fact, there was a 2018 National Defense Strategy Commission commissioned by Congress that looked at this with bipartisan experts on it. And the number one concern they had in the entire globe was in the Taiwan Strait. And for too long, uh, frankly, in the Obama administration, there was a reluctance to give Taiwan the, the arms they needed to defend themselves. The Trump administration, to their credit, reversed that policy and, has, and, and had and made the decision to provide a lot of weapons. But those weapons in and of themselves take time to deliver and are not enough. There also has to be, as someone who served in the U.S. Army, you have to be able to operate those weapons as individuals and as units. And uh, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We can give Taiwan you know, all the weapons they would ever want, but in the end, with enough time, given uh, the historic mo military modernization effort that the People's Liberation Army has undertaken, the most significant in the history of the People's Republic of China, sooner or later, Beijing will win that. So the point here is that Taiwan has to be able to hold on long enough for the U.S. military to come to their aid. Uh, and, and so the longer we can make a Taiwan capable of holding off un when under assault from the mainland, the sooner we can get there and help them. And so there really are multiple components there. We need to, in short, we need to make Taiwan like a porcupine that is an unappealing candidate for consumption by a predator. Well, apparently the Chinese Coast Guard has been authorized to fire on foreign vessels if necessary in the uh, Taiwan Straits and also in the South China Sea. So your thought on that? 
Because a lot of times as Americans, we think, you know, hey, we're either at war or peace with someone. There's nothing in between. That's not how China views it. They really view it as a reestat or a dial. It gets dialed up or down. And they engage what we, you know, gray zone warfare or hybrid warfare, as, as various experts call it. We see uh, China using their Coast Guard and also civilian, seemingly civilian fishing vessels to undertake, uh, you know, state policy. And, you know, this, is, this makes a larger point that I think Amer Americans need to understand. Um, there is no such thing, in my view, as a, as a private Chinese company. There is no Chinese company that when they get the call from Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party is going to say no. So when you're talking about a, a, a Chinese fishing vessel in the South China Sea or a Chinese company trying to do business here in the United States, uh, you need to understand that to some degree they are either explicitly or implicitly working for the Chinese Communist Party. This is not a, a xenophobic comment, right? We have no, we have no bone to pick with uh, the Chinese people. The Chinese people deserve better than they're getting from the government. But let's be clear, in my view, the preeminent threat to the United States, our security, our prosperity, and our freedom from abroad right now is the Chinese Communist Party because they combine wealth, their, their economy is eight times larger than that of Russia, the most significant military modernization we've seen in decades from any country, uh, and a hostile authoritarian ideology that they're honing at home and exporting abroad. And that threat continues. An advanced cyber group affiliated with Chinese intelligence is using a new, never-seen-before powerful hacking weapon in a series of attacks on embassies, government offices, and state-owned technology, and science companies in Asia and Australia. So what can you tell us about it? How great of a threat does that pose to the USA? Yeah, you know, a lot of times there's a tendency, including by people like me, to focus on ships and submarines and aircraft. Um, but Americans need to understand that this threat from the Chinese Communist Party is a comprehensive one, including in the cyber domain. You know, our experts here in the United States have said the theft of intellectual property uh, that China has undertaken against the United States is arguably the most significant transfer of intellectual property in human history. And most of, a lot of this has been done licitly and illicitly and in the cyber domain. And so we're, we're in constant conflict with the Chinese Communist Party. The only question is whether Americans realize it and whether we're willing to do something about it. And I think the Trump administration got something right and they got something wrong. What they got right was taking the China threat seriously. What they got wrong was is too often they would try to take on this threat unilaterally rather than getting the good guys together first and then confronting Beijing together, kind of like on the playground, right? When you've got a bully, you don't go take on the bully by yourself. You go build a coalition of all the good guys, and then you go to the bully. So we should be getting together more systematically with the G7, the seven largest economies, democracies, the cyber domain, and other areas where we see uh, the CCP engaged in this conflict that I'm talking about. Okay, a lot for the Biden administration to address. Bradley Bowman, FDD's senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power. Thank you, Brad, for joining us today. Thank you. Sent packing. After spending about a year in Hong Kong, where they started three house churches, American pastor Francis Chan and his family were forced to return to the United States. Although their visas were not renewed by the Chinese government, Pastor Chan is hoping to eventually return to continue his evangelistic work there. He joins us now to explain what happened. Pastor Chan, thank you for joining us. So you weren't given much notice. Tell us what transpired. What explanation did the government there give for not renewing your visas? Yeah, you, you know, uh, there have been some different articles written about the situation, and uh, um, and I think people have interjected their own views or thoughts of what may have happened. 
Um, but the truth is, is it, it very well could have been just my application for immigration, um, that there were some things we didn't think through. And, and so they had some questions for us. And, and uh, so normally that process takes about six weeks, six to eight weeks, I was told, to get a two-year work visa. Um, they took almost a year uh, before they finally responded, and they responded with a negative. And uh, their reasoning was the sponsoring entity that was bringing me in wasn't clear enough and didn't give enough um, detail as to what we would be doing there in country. You know, there are people who were writing and saying, oh, you know, it's the communist government or this or that. And it's like, ah, I never said that. And it may not be at all. So let's be careful not to make this bigger than what it actually is, because it can also be damaging to the possibility of me going back into Hong Kong when uh, we have Americans saying, oh, the communists kicked him out, everything else. And, and uh, that isn't the case that I know of. Uh, it, it looks like just an immigration issue. Has a crackdown against churches on the mainland spilled over into Hong Kong? What difficulties, if any, are churches in Hong Kong facing today? I think the, the biggest difficulty is the division within the church. Um, obviously, we see that in the U.S., that people begin to take sides um, of, you know, pro-China, pro-democracy, and then these people are leaving their churches, and the churches are fighting, and people are skeptical of each other. And it all, it all, all I know is it breaks the heart of God. Jesus Christ died so that we could become perfectly one um, it, you know, there are things that God has done that should make us one in spirit with him and each other. But instead, I see this because of our opinions of, well, I, I think, you know, you know, in Hong Kong, it was, you know, you got to be blue or yellow. You, you have to be, you know, pro Hong Kong or pro China. And then there was all this clashing that I, I know God hates in the U.S., we have a you know a, a slew of reasons to divide with one another, and so that was I think the biggest heartbreak um, was trying to get people to look higher at what God wants of His family that we don't fight with each other and we become perfectly one. We've heard that as many as 300 million Chinese could become Christian by the year 2030. That's less than a decade away. So how rapidly is the gospel spreading and being accepted in Hong Kong and in mainland China? Numbers are really tricky when you talk about China. I've heard every single number out there. And then, you know, projections. I, I, my personal, you know, when I read scripture, I... I I don't see this, okay, for the last three years, we're going this way, therefore we can project this or this or this. I mean, I see a God who just disrupts anytime we think we have anything figured out and okay, here's the key to revival or here's, um, I do see in scripture that there's something, that's why that unity piece is so big that the unity of the church has a big impact on revival. 
um, Jesus' prayer. It's when you become perfectly one, you do that so that the world may know that Jesus was sent from the Father. So it, I, I do see some very amazing, committed followers of Christ. I do see a spread of the gospel that is unlike anything I've seen in the U.S., um, a revival like far beyond anything I've seen here. You made no secret about starting three house churches in Hong Kong. Tell us about them and what your absence may mean for them. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's decisions we have to make. Like, what are we going to do? I'm very concerned during this time because you have people digging in going, no, you know, we can't do things online. And others are saying, yes, we can do it online. It's like, no, we have to meet physically in a building with this number of people. And others are like, no, we must meet in a home. And, you know, and, and it's just like, you guys, you guys, let's just, these are all methodologies. These are all opinions. Let's just, let's just come together before the Lord. If we really want to, let's look at the values, the things we must do. And there isn't a must about gathering in a building. We know we need to confess our sins to one another. We know we need to bear with one another. We know that we need to aim at becoming perfectly one. And as we obey these biblical mandates and figure out how to obey them in our context, giving people freedom to do it as they're called to do it, that's when we're going to see the blessing. That's when we're going to see that power of that early church and the Lord adding to our numbers daily. And as we praise him, and it's in that praising that we're going to become more and more the church that he wanted us to be. Okay, Pastor Francis Chan, thank you for sharing your time and insights. Great, thank you. Continued COVID lockdowns, job losses, inner city violence. All these things are taking a big toll on the country, especially for black Americans. So are Joe Biden's proposals going to make life better for African-Americans? We're here to set us straight is Autry Pruitt. Mr. Pruitt is CEO of New Journey PAC. It's the largest political action committee dedicated to the realignment of black American voters. I know you can't speak for all black conservatives, but the people you talk to, what are they saying to you about Biden's initiative so far? Well, the people I talk to, which, by the way, includes those from the left side of the aisle, who happen to also be African-Americans, Biden's first term in office so far has been a disaster because the first thing he does is issue edicts, that's what these are, edicts to kill jobs. He's either issuing edicts to kill jobs or, two, to push back against religious rights. Those are the two things that he's done. Well, I, I know Antifa and BLM rioters caused a lot of destruction in some uh, larger urban neighborhoods over the summer, more recently in Portland on Biden's inauguration day. So that certainly has hurt black families and business people more than others. Also, these uh, continued COVID lockdowns, eventual changes in immigration policies. Now, that may likely lead to fewer jobs for black Americans, especially young people. So Autry, what needs to be done to help them raise, uh, help them? I mean, should we raise well, a minimum wage to $15 per hour? No, not, not only has he done things to kill jobs, and not, he's doing things so that people can't eat. His edicts and his orders to tamp down on any enforcement against BLM and Antifa is actually harming the black community. 
If you look back, one of the commercials we ran during the political season was a mother crying. She was crying, saying, I can't go get my kids anything to eat because Antifa and BLM were allowed to tear up the neighborhood. And stores don't want to go back there, right? So now you want to have him come along and say, not only are we going to allow them to tear up your neighborhood, but if you get a store back there, we're going to make the minimum wage so high that a store will only be able to employ one or two people. And guess what? The one or two people that they employ will not come from the neighborhood. They won't come from that neighborhood. They're going to come from outside their neighborhood. They'll drive in every day. They'll go to work, and then they'll go back to the other side of the tracks. Now, I know about 12 percent of black American voters cast ballots for Donald Trump. Many liberal mm -hmm. Democrats probably think those voters are delusional. So why did Trump receive such a large percentage of black support compared to uh, Republicans in previous elections? Because the Republican Party has an issue. The Republican Party refuses to actually engage. And by engage, I'm not talking about a slick ad. I'm not talking about slick direct mail campaigns. I'm talking about putting people on the ground, speaking plain language every single day. Trump was able to do that because despite his celebrity status, because of his stature with The Apprentice and other Hollywood initiatives that he had taken on privately, he began to develop a little bit of relationship. So someone watching him through the TV felt like, oh, I knew this. One of the things many people don't know that I believe Trump is the celebrity outside of other hip-hop celebrities with the most name mentions inside of urban hip-hop songs, right? So he had a little bit of a start. He had his foot in the door. That's what it takes. It takes being on the ground and developing a relationship, not a relationship which revolves around politics or BLM or Blue Lives Matter or anything else, but just having a relationship. So what Republicans need to do is they need to get there. They need to be engaged. They need to be on the ground, not to talk politics, but just to help their fellow man. And I know that John James uh, was a good example in Michigan as someone who was in the community, a successful business person that people looked up to, and he was working the neighborhoods uh, despite his election. I mean, even before he ran, people knew him, and he barely uh, lost that election. So what yeah, else must Republicans do? Politics is local. Anyone that's been in the political game for five years or longer can tell you politics are local. People look at ALC and say, how can she keep winning? How does she win that? She's this. She says stupid stuff. But guess what? She's there for her people. John James, although he lost, he barely lost. And guess what? We need to not give up the fight. That's the difference. Democrats and the progressive left come in, and even when they lose, even when they lose by large margins, look at Texas, they stay there. They put more money there. They put more energy there. Think about it like this. Coca-Cola will never say, you know what, Pepsi beats us out in Lexington, Kentucky, so we're never going to advertise there. If anything, they say, no, let's keep our presence there, and it may take a decade, but eventually we'll capture the market share. Republicans need to think the same way. It doesn't matter. You barely lost, or even if you lost by a margin, don't give up. Don't give up on Illinois. Don't give up on California. Don't give up on New York City. Just put some cracks there, and eventually it will shatter, and you can break through. Thinking long term. Okay, Autry Pruitt, CEO of New Journey Pack. Thank you for setting us straight today, Autry. Thank you so much for having me. Religious freedom advocates are gravely concerned about the military coup and crackdown on pro-democracy leaders in Myanmar this week. 
Christians in the country formerly known as Burma fear the military takeover could lead to a return to the persecution that they experienced for decades there. I know it well because I reported about it extensively, starting in the early 1990s. I even testified about it before a congressional committee. Karen and Kareni ethnics, the majority of them Christian, were forced to leave their homes and seek refuge in neighboring Thailand. Some of them never made it that far. They died during Burmese army raids on their villages. These parents wept for their murdered children. Others were victims or witnesses of rape. We saw some women who got the rape. Some women even got gang rape. Human rights violations like that caused the U.S. government to impose economic sanctions on the Burmese military junta. The sanctions were eventually lifted once free elections were held and the country embraced democracy. But now it seems the military has reverted back to its old habits. It's no coincidence that the coup happened now. And by the way, this is a real coup, not a mythical one like those alleged to have occurred in Washington. The coup most likely occurred at this time because Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, is now in the White House. Myanmar and China are testing Biden's resolve. And so what was his response? Did he immediately impose sanctions or take other tough action? Nope. President Biden issued a statement saying he'd be watching to see how other countries respond. He called the coup, quote, a direct assault on the country's transition to democracy and the rule of law, and said that progress toward democracy should be respected. Wow. That stern statement will put the fear of God in them, won't it? Instead, Mr. President, how about a tougher statement like, if you do not immediately release Aung San Suu Kyi and other political prisoners, the United States will immediately reimpose economic sanctions. And he should say, if our allies expect to maintain favorable trade relations with the United States, they'll do the same. While we await a stronger U.S. response, let's pray for the people of Myanmar. Pray that democracy will be restored, that God will shield Christians from a return of persecution. And let's all remember that we are one in the body of Christ. When Christians in Myanmar or anywhere else in the world suffer, we all suffer. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Twitter, hopefully again on Parlor, and now on MeWe. And until next time, be blessed.